April 11th, 1970, a little over 50 years ago, some of you weren't even alive then, but the Apollo 13 mission was launched from Kennedy Space Center. Their mission was to land on the moon, but just a couple of days in, that mission shifted very quickly, and the sole mission purpose was just to get those three astronauts home, because you see, two days in, an explosion occurred on board in the liquid oxygen tanks. And what that did was create all sorts of problems, loss of oxygen, loss of life support. And so the mission was just to help those men survive and figure out a way to get them home. They were in danger of freezing to death. There was a, a problem, a potential for asphyxiation from the CO2 buildup. And certainly the problem with enough power to get them back home and back to Earth safely. There were so many issues and problems that arose as a result of that tragic explosion to prohibit their, their return and to make it a reality. Some were actually doubtful that it would even be possible to bring them home. The odds were great. Uh, the issues were significant. And Americans began to pray. The families of those astronauts were praying. Co-workers, uh, everyone waited and watched on television to seeing all these events unfold. It was a time of fear and anxiety and great concern. All the engineers on Earth scrambled to find solutions to try to solve all these many problems that resulted from that explosion. It's a fascinating story. Uh, it made for a great movie. If you haven't seen Apollo 13, I highly recommend it. It's, it's one of the McFarland family's favorite, probably because in this movie, it's the nerdy engineers that are the heroes, right? And, and we have three engineers in our family, so we love, we love this movie. But in this, in the real life story, the, the hard work, the ingenuity of those engineers, especially given the limitations of technology 50 years ago. In fact, ladies, I read somewhere that the, the computing power that we have in a little phone that we have in our hands is greater than the technology that was in the entire spacecraft over 50 years ago. It's nothing short of astounding uh, to see what they were able to do to get that spacecraft out there and then certainly to overcome the obstacles to bring them home. The nation waited and prayed. The engineers calculated, deliberated, collaborated. But here's the deal. Those astronauts out there in space could do nothing for themselves. Without outside help, they would surely lose life support. Uh, they would be doomed to, to wander in space, to never come home, for, to die from as asphyxiation. They would eventually, of course, run out of food, but they would probably run out of oxygen first. They needed help to navigate back to Earth. They needed help just to survive until they could turn around and get back to Earth. They needed a plan to get them back home. They were stuck out there in space. There was nothing that they could do on their own to save themselves. Even if you weren't alive in 1970, and even if you're not a student of history or the space program, you probably have heard about the Apollo 13 crisis. And if you've heard anything about it, you've probably heard quoted these famous words, Houston, we've had a problem. And all these years later, all of us, like those astronauts on board the Apollo 13, we still have a problem. And ladies, that problem that we can never solve on our own is called sin. And it's the same problem that affects every single member of the human race. Just as the astronauts were powerless to fix their problems, and they faced certain death if their problems were not solved, so we are 
powerless to fix our sin problem, and we face certain spiritual death for eternity if our sin problem is not solved. Now, last week we studied Romans 1, 16 and 17, and we celebrated the glorious news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We read those two little verses that change everything. We realized that the righteousness that we need to, to ensure our destiny for eternity is a gift. It's a gift. It's nothing we could ever earn, nothing we ever deserve. It came to us as a gift. The power of God brings salvation to everyone who believes. And that righteousness comes by faith from first to last. The gospel is the answer to our sin problem. We cannot save ourselves. Our good can never be good enough. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. <clears throat> but for us to truly understand the profound gift of his righteousness and how very much we need his righteousness, we have to come to an in-depth understanding of what unrighteousness really is. Because you see, you can't see that you need righteousness until you actually own and believe and look in the mirror and see how unrighteous you really are. And that's what the remaining verses of chapter 1 of Romans are going to lay out for us. We're to continue to study the topic of sin even the next two weeks as we unpack chapters 2 and chapters 3 in the book of Romans. This week in part 1, we're looking at verses 18 to 32 of chapter 1. Now, most commentators and scholars believe that this particular passage is targeted towards the Gentiles, those apart from God's chosen people, the Jews. And then we get to part two, when we get into chapter two, and that's when it get, Paul shifts his focus and he speaks directly to the Jews. Well, you know, because we don't really think about classifying people into Gentiles and Jews and then making those types of distinctions in our time and in our culture. Um, we want to think... We might want instead to think about Romans 1, 18 to 32 as applying to the bad girls or the irreligious. And then when we get to Romans 2, we might find that there's equally sobering truth and about sin for all the good girls as well. So whether you're bad girls or whether you're good girls, whoever you are, if you're a human being, you have a problem, and that problem is sin. And reading this passage will do nothing if not convince us that we are all sinners, no matter what that sin is, and we are all in need of a Savior. We are all lost and hopeless apart from Jesus Christ. Ladies, I would like to invite you now to stand with me in honor of God's holy word as we read a passage of Scripture that is very sobering. It's very serious, and some parts of it have even become very controversial. But this is the word of God, and therefore, every word of it is absolutely true. Would you uh, read along with me or just listen along? I'm starting in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. 
Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and, and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Ladies, thank you for standing in honor of God's word. You may be seated. Would you just pray with me as we begin? Father, thank you for your word. We know that your word is true. Whatever passages we come to that may be difficult to understand or may make us feel uncomfortable, Father, we know that your Holy Spirit can make all things true and all things understandable that we need to know. We declare today that you are a good God and you are a great God. And as women of God, would you just redirect us and shore up our understanding so that we may live to give you glory and to be thankful to you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, the beginning point to receiving help for the astronauts to acknowledge, to, to, the beginning point for the astronauts to receive help was to acknowledge that they needed it. They had to acknowledge that they needed a problem. And I think the, the, that's the same that is true for us. For us to acknowledge our need for a Savior, we have to acknowledge that we are sinful. The beginning point for us is to acknowledge that we are sinners, that we are unrighteous, and our only hope is to find that solution not of ourselves, but actually apart from ourselves. So this week is indeed a tough lesson and a challenging passage and even a bit controversial. So ladies, I pray that we will approach this text with respect and truth and humility and just a, a heart that desires wisdom. I pray that this lesson heightens our understanding of the depth and the depravity of my own personal sin and yours as well. The topic of sin um, is sometimes a hard one and a difficult one. But it's only in acknowledging the magnitude of our sin that we can simultaneously come with just profound gratefulness for the magnitude of his great love for us and what he did for us. Because you see, all of us in this room and all human beings are simultaneously much more sinful than we ever wanted to admit, but also more loved and more cherished than we ever imagined. That's a thought that I, I picked up years ago from a, a Puritan writer and I love to think on that sometimes, that at the same time I am a, a huge sinner, I am also profoundly loved. We are tainted and spoiled and ruined and unfit for heaven because God is holy. Uh, there's a great chasm that separates us because of our sin. 
and we think about sin, it sort of brings up three questions. What is sin? What should be our attitude towards sin? And what is that remedy for sin? Well, I, I would maintain to you that sin is, is so much more than just bad things we do or even good things that we don't do. Sin is really a rejection of God's character. Lying is, is wrong, for example, because God is truth. And adultery is wrong because God is faithful. You know, we, we tend to sort of compare ourselves to, to one another um, and to feel like, well, as long as I'm not doing that, then I'm okay. But God is the standard for righteousness. And when God becomes the standard, then not a single one of us measures up. Our attitudes towards sin should be to simply agree with God. We need to mourn our sin, uh, not brag about it. We need to, 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 to mourn it, to repent of it, to fight against it, to ask for God's help to gain victory over that sin. Because the thing that trips me up might not be the thing that trips you up. But the answer and the remedy is the same for all of us. To bring that before the Lord and ask by his power and through the power of his spirit to gain victory. I love the words of 1 John 1, 9. You'll probably hear me quote them many times over and over. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. I wonder, I want to ask you, is your life marked by a continual cycle of, of seeing that conviction? And, and repenting and laying that out before the Lord, confessing that, receiving his cleansing. That's not a, a process we go through only for salvation. It happens initially at salvation when we confess. But a woman of God who's growing and changing, who's being sanctified day by day, is going to go through that continual cycle of repentance and receiving for when he convicts to agree with him, to mourn that sin, confess it immediately, and then receive that blessed cleansing that comes from it. It's a continual cycle that, that is marked in us if we are growing in him. You know, Christians are often accused of being hypocritical or judgmental when it comes to sin. But that should never, ever be our attitude. We are just as guilty, we are just as unrighteous, just as much in need of mercy and grace and forgiveness as anyone else, even after we have become believers. But here's the difference. We do not rationalize or justify our sin. We don't try to redefine sin as something that it's not. Our attitude towards sin is one of mourning our sin, confessing it. We celebrate the blessed forgiveness and cleansing and peace that comes to us through our Savior. We celebrate the gospel, the good news, and we celebrate it every single day that we have been declared righteous in Christ. We celebrate the freedom that that brings to us. We no longer need to be defined by that sin that seeks to trip us up. We proclaim the truth. The gospel is the remedy for sin. Ladies, we are starving, hungry people who have found the bread of life. We are thirsty women who have found the living water. And it is our great privilege to point others to the, to the banquet table. As we celebrate our, our new life in Christ and that continual living of that life in Christ, our freedom and our peace, may we celebrate with joy that we have been set free from that. The blessing of knowing that we are loved and we are forgiven. But may that never ever make us puffed up, make us proud, make us lead to a place that we point our finger or condemn others. It should only make us grateful. May it never lead us to look on those who have yet to find him with judgment, 
or condemnation, but only with love and understanding. As we unpack the topic of sin in today's passage, we will see its devastating results. Laid out for us very clearly by Paul is this downward spiral that sin brings. Well, we're going to begin first by examining a couple of key phrases that open up this passage, and we talked about them in our small groups, but I, I, I want to deal with them a little more specifically. First of all, the wrath of God. Now, when we hear the phrase wrath of God, that has an Old Testament sound to it, doesn't it? It just sounds Old Testament. It, it, it may even be offensive to some. It, it's, it's sort of an old-fashioned view, we might say. It's what we associate with, you know, the 1800s and hellfire and brimstone and, and that kind of preaching. Some might even say that to talk that God's to talk about the wrath of God that feels incompatible with His love. But I want to tell you, God is not a doting grandfather. God doesn't just wink at our sin or excuse our sin. I love what Chuck Swindoll said: "A God of love must have the capacity for anger." Now, if you grew up with a father or a parent with anger issues, this is not that. This is not uncontrolled anger. God's wrath is very much controlled. It is deliberate and it is always just. God will not stand by while evil condemns his creation. He loves us too much for that. And you know, really, we know intuitively that there is a time and, and a, an appropriate place for wrath and for justice. For example, we would never tolerate a judge who let criminals go free, a judge who was so complacent that someone that would come into his courtroom, no matter what heinous crime they had committed, would just say, oh, I know you're sorry. I know you won't do it again. Just, just go on home and don't do it again. We would be outraged. We would be outraged by a parent. And, and we've seen those parents in line at the grocery store who, left, who failed to discipline their children and put them in a place of being unsafe. And they may scream and yell and threaten, I'm gonna, if you don't, I'm gonna, and we know she's not gonna, and the grocery clerk knows she's not gonna, and all the ten people in line behind us know she's not gonna. We, we need to discipline our children. It's what a, a good parent does. A parent uh, who fails to discipline isn't, isn't a good parent. And, and a parent who fails to protect their child from evil is not a good parent. God is that good, perfect parent. He is righteously uh, comes against evil. His wrath is a good thing. We must understand the wrath of God that, and respect it as a holy wrath, that it is an appropriate wrath, that it is a just wrath, and we have to fully understand it and appreciate in order to fully celebrate the gospel. God's wrath is different than man's wrath. His ways are not our ways. He is perfect in all he does. Perfect love and perfect and appropriate wrath. God is great and God is good. Verse 18 says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. Now, what is the difference? Since Paul refers to godlessness and wickedness, there has to be a distinction here. So what is that difference? Well, as I studied and prepared, I came to understand that godlessness speaks to what we think about God. That's that vertical relationship, while wickedness speaks to our horizontal relationship with other people. And, and we learned in our study this week that you can be, being godless doesn't necessarily mean you don't believe in God. It just means that you leave God out of the equation. You just disregard him in your decision-making and in your behaviors. We are godless when we fail to worship God. We are godless when we fail to acknowledge God. And then we are wicked when we fail to treat others appropriately. 
when I think about godlessness and the vertical relationship, and then wickedness and the horizontal relationship, it prompted me to remember these words of Jesus when he asked about the greatest commandment. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And then he said the second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, isn't that interesting? The two great commandments that Jesus gave us, love God and love others. And when we are godless, we are refusing to love God, refusing to worship God, so we are rejecting the first commandment. And when we are wicked, we are refusing to love others the way we are supposed to love them. When we reject God, it, it, it trickles on out and impacts, impacts our relationship with other people. And in fact, when we remove God from the equation, if we fail to love God first and, and to receive that filling in our hearts with his love, then I believe we are automatically hindered and handicapped in our ability and in our capacity to love others well. Godlessness and wickedness are the results of our failure to keep the two greatest commandments that our Lord Jesus gave us. When we reject God and embrace our sin, it also launches this downward spiral that we read about as we unpack this passage in Romans 1. We're going to look at this downward spiral as we unpack today's passage. But it begins with suppressing the truth and then rejecting the truth and then exchanging the truth for the lie. And that, of course, leads to idolatry. We talk about suppressing the truth. Paul uses the phrase suppress the truth in verse 18. And that's the first item on the downward spiral. You know, you can try to hold down the truth. You can try to hide it. You can try to shove it in a box, try to stick your fingers in your ears or cover your eyes and not see it. But you cannot change the truth. The truth is not up for a vote. It doesn't matter how many laws democracy votes to change. You can't vote to change the truth. Truth is the truth, and God's word is truth. Someone might say, well, well what do you think? Well, my answer would be, it is irrelevant what I think. What I say or what I think does not determine truth. The important thing is what does God's word say. Now, when it comes to Apollo 13, our analogy we opened with, I doubt that any of us have a spacecraft in our backyard, but I, almost every person in this room probably has an automobile, right? And if you have an automobile, that, that vehicle came with an owner's manual. And when you open up the owner's manual, it's going to give you clear direction for how to care for that automobile. And it might specifically, for example, on changing the oil. And it might tell you that that oil needs to be changed every 5,000 miles, and you need to use five quarts of oil. Now, you may decide that that's just too invasive for you. That takes up too much time and money. So you're going to create your own truth. And you're going to say, for my vehicle, my truth is 10,000 miles and three quarts of oil. Because I just don't have time to go get the oil changed that frequently. And so you just declare your own truth. And you know, how, how long are you going to get away with that? It might get you along okay for a little while, but eventually you're going to pay the price for creating your own truth when it comes to operating your, your automobile. When we ignore the clearly laid out truth provided by the creator of that car, we do so at our own peril. Might rock along in the short term, but suppressing the truth and ignoring the truth and creating your own truth will eventually catch up with you. Well, what happens when the stakes are much higher than poor engine performance or even a burned-up engine but have implications for eternity? You see, your passion and your emotion cannot make something true. 
And when it comes to acknowledging the existence of God, we are without excuse. Scripture tells us in verse, in verse 20, we are without excuse. God has revealed himself to everyone through his creation. All of creation bears witness to his character and his creativity. Even those who do, who don't, who do not know him by name, who live in a culture or a country or a remote part of the world that have never heard the name Jesus, they see clear evidence of his creation, of his existence. We see his eternal powers and divine nature when we stand on top of a snow-capped mountain or look at the base of it and, and stand up and look at it. We marvel at his, his eternal nature and divine power when we stand on the edge of the seashore there with our toes in the sand and we watch that tide roll in and we see the cadence of it and we see the ocean that just seems to go on forever. We marvel and know there has to be a creator when we hold a newborn baby and celebrate the miracle of life. When we, when we see food and flowers and trees and taste and texture and all the varieties around us, God's beauty and God's glory are all around. We celebrate. We know this couldn't just happen. He is the genius that thought it all up and then had the power to speak it into existence. Beauty and order never result from chaos. If that were the case, I would never have to keep going back to my desk and my kitchen counter. But they always spiral downward, don't they? You don't get order from chaos. There has to be intelligent design. Creation tells us that. Creation cries out there is a God. And knowing that he is there should prompt us to do two things, according to the scripture. It should prompt us to glorify God and give, to give thanks to him. That's a truth we take away from verse 21. It provides the sobering truth. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's the result of godlessness and wickedness. It's what happens when the truth is suppressed. But when we know God, when we joyfully and eagerly respond to him by glorifying him and thanking him, then we are abiding in him. We know him. I want to ask you, have you glorified God today? Have you thanked him this week? You see, ladies, this is an inside-out response. It, knowing him on the inside prompts that praise and worship and thankfulness and glory to him on the outside. It's so much more than just checking the good girl box, so much more than just reciting something with your mouth. It comes from the heart. God clues us in over in Isaiah 43 as to why we're even here. He says, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. We were created for a purpose. And that purpose is to worship him and to bring him glory. I love what John Piper says. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied with him. That's the picture of a life that's abiding in Christ. And when we see and embrace the reason that we are here and the purpose for our existence, when we choose to worship God and to thank God, it changes everything. It gives us a fresh, a fresh perspective on life and its purpose. It gives meaning to life like we've never had before. It changes everything from the inside out. Our relationships not just what we do, but our motives behind it, our desires. It even changes our prayer life. You know, when Jesus taught us to pray, he said, this is how you pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He told us to open up by glorifying God. That word hallowed 
There's an old-timey word for us, but there's no other word that, that says it better. Hallowed means to revere, to regard as sacred, to hold in awe, to regard as holy. You cannot simultaneously hallow God and then also revel in your own sin or excuse your own sin. We have to first reject godlessness and hallow God if we hope to live victoriously over sin. The Lord's Prayer opens by worshiping God, hallowing, revering, praising God, and then Jesus teaches us to move on to confession and intercession. But all too often when we pray, we just jump to that list. God, do this, fix her, change that, make it snappy. We think the prayer is just a grocery list that we recite. But we start off with worshiping God first. Jesus taught us this. It's from our worship that flows our prayer requests. And it even changes what we ask for. It changes what we confess. We worship God first, even in our prayer life. The woman of God glorifies God and gives thanks to him. And if we are doing that, then conviction of sin and an understanding of sin will naturally follow. And an awareness of our own unrighteousness and an even deeper and more profound gratefulness for the righteousness that has been imputed to us through Jesus Christ. Have you thanked God for anything today? Have you worshipped him for anything this week? First thing when we get out of bed in the morning and we put our feet on the floor, can we raise our hands and say, Lord, thank you for the gift of this day. Let me use this day to make much of you. Order my day. Show me your plans for me today. As you drive down the road, as you take kids to school, as you pick them up, as you drive to the doctor or go to the grocery store, can that become your worship time? Can you look out your window and see all of creation and let what you see prompt you to praise him? Can, you, can we cultivate and train ourselves to be very intentional about doing those two things, to worship God, to revere God, and to, to glorify God and to give thanks to him? Well, our worship of God is what protects us, I think, from a life of godlessness and wickedness. But when God is rejected and when there is intentional, deliberate rebellion, there are sobering consequences that come. It leads to this futile thinking and darkened hearts and foolishness and eventually idolatry. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but it says their thinking became futile, their foolish hearts were darkened, they claimed to be wise, they became fools, they, they exchanged the glory of God for images made to look like a mortal human being. You know, there's a created order to things. Human beings are made in God's image. We are the crown of his creation. We are to reflect his character and his nature to the world. We were created to worship him and to glorify him. And when we undo that order or we mess with that natural order of the creation and we remove God, well, we're still going to worship something because we are hardwired to worship. It's in our nature. It's who we are. And if we're not going to worship God, then the question becomes, who or what will we worship? Who or what captivates your imagination? Who consumes your thoughts? What is it that consumes your dreams? What do you think about when you're loading the dishwasher or driving down the street? That downtime where you don't have to be thinking or focusing on something gives us away. It, it tells us what is most important. What has your loyalty? What do you go to to calm your fears? What is it that validates you and makes you feel worthy? What is it that claims your affections? Ladies, everybody worships something. It, it might be a place, your, your place that you just have to go to get away from it all. It might be something that you just have to eat 
that a hot fudge Sunday is going to make it all okay. It might be a new couch or a new dress, whatever it is. If it is not God, it might be power. There are those that are consumed with power, intellectual power, uh, political power, economic power. Maybe it's a hero that you worship. Maybe it's an entertainer. Maybe it's a sports team with football season coming. Maybe it's a TV show or, or, or some movie star that, that you're going to never miss that. You're going to get yourself planted in front of that screen when the season premiere opens of whatever. Maybe it's popularity. Maybe you thrive on being thought well of and having lots of friends. And, and you daily check your Facebook to see how many Facebook friends you have or your Insta to see how many followers you have. You know, we as moms, we can even become worshipers of our children, get so caught up in their lives and their success that it takes on worship. It might be nature. You love out of doors so much, and, and we can see God's handprint in creation, but we are to worship the creator, not the creation. It might be money. It might even be morality, that you find your um, sense of security in knowing that you're a good girl. So checking all those boxes, morality could even be what you worship. But our great God makes it very clear in the book of Isaiah, I am the Lord, that is my name, I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. We were created by God and we were created for God. The first two commandments that God gave us when he laid out his top ten, you shall have no other gods before me and you shall not make for yourself an idol. We are to worship God and God alone. You know, the biggest idol for many of us, I think the idol that is a temptation for every single one of us, is ourself. I think to some degree we all struggle with a little bit or a lot of self-worship, self-promotion, self-indulgence, self-deception. It's very easy to get caught up in worshiping ourselves. We engage in self-promotion, self-indulgence. It leads to self-deception. We even begin to believe our own press about how great we are. We think it, and then we begin to believe it. It's, it's a, an attitude that sort of makes ourselves supreme. I want what I want. The world revolves around me. And so we're going to resist. We're going to fight. We're going to rebel. We're going to manipulate. We're going to strategize. We're going to be devious. We're going to demand. We're going to figure out a way to get our way. And finally, God sometimes allows us to experience the consequences of those choices. He gives us a heads up. I think his Holy Spirit, if you're a believer, will whisper in your ear and rein you in. But three times, the sobering reality that we see in verse 24, 26, and 28, we see the phrase over and over, God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. That is a chilling, sobering, frightening phrase. And it should prompt not condemnation, but intercession to those we know who have embraced godlessness and wickedness. Today's text lists over 20 specific sins. I've featured as many as I could pull from the text here on the screen. And make no mistake, each and every one of these sins listed on the screen is a sin. Each one on its own renders us unrighteous. And each one of these, taken even in isolation, renders us unworthy to have a relationship with a righteous, holy God. Sin is sin in God's economy. God makes no distinction. He doesn't classify sins as misdemeanors and felonies the way we classify law, laws that are broken in our society. Each one of these sins, independently or collectively, separates us from God. 
God wants us to choose to obey him. And when we strain and push and resist against those good, healthy boundaries, he sometimes just lets us go. He doesn't force us to love and obey him. He allows us to come freely and by our own will. When we remove and reject God from the equation, it sort of becomes every man or every woman for himself. And the results of that are devastating to individuals, to families, to our community, and to our culture. We should look at that list and be sobered by it. It should convict us. It should make us realize that we have no hope, that we are all guilty of one or more of those things. Because here's the reality. Every single sin that we choose to embrace and we choose to refuse to confess and we take to our own and we just say, well, that's just who I am, that sin will eventually consume us. It will become more and more necessary to fuel that, to keep pushing the boundaries. Step one in the downward spiral towards that sin may be intoxicating. It may be fun. It may be exciting the first time, but not the second or the third. There's going to be an increasing giving over of ourselves to that sin. More and more will be needed to give us that same rush and that same sense of excitement and satisfaction until it absolutely consumes us. It's like a fire. A fire just keeps consuming and looking for more and more wood to burn up. Every new boundary will have to be pushed further and further and further. It spurs on this frenzy. So whichever sin is your besetting sin, it's going to crave more and more. It will demand more and more of you until it owns you because that's the nature of sin. It is addictive and it is destructive. And only God, only God can give us freedom from that sin. Only God can provide satisfaction and contentment and peace and, and the joy that we actually are desperately craving for when we give in to whatever that sin is. Today's passage highlights the sin that has become increasingly controversial in our culture. Romans 1, 26 to 27 says, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. This is probably one of the most controversial, if not the most controversial verse in scripture in our modern day culture. But here's the reality. All sex outside of marriage distorts and taints God's best for us. This is in scripture, so it is true. Homosexuality is a sin, but so is all sexual sin. And so are all those other sins that we had on the screen before. Homosexuality is a sin, as is adultery and premarital sex and every other sexual sin. I think when it comes to this specific sin, that Christians have accepted two lies when it comes to homosexuality. And those two lies can be classified as either liberal or conservative. The liberal view wants to excuse the sin and sort of reinterpret scripture or redefine it. Um, Answers like, well, God, God made me this way, or God wants everybody to be happy, or God just wants us to love and accept and approve of people just like they are. And so we sort of redefine. Uh, the conservative view would say, uh, would want to single out this sin as the worst of all the sins on the list. 
and, and just banish homosexualities, homosexuals from the conversation. You are so far gone, they would say, that the gospel can't reach you. There is no hope. I believe that both views are wrong. We diminish or water down the gospel when we fail to take sin, all sin, seriously. When we fail to believe God's true word. But we also diminish and water down the gospel when we fail to declare that the gospel is sufficient for all people. So the question is, to those in our world, and to those in our community, and to those in our neighborhood, and even in our family, how do we respond? What's the appropriate respond? Do we excuse and accept or redefine what the scripture teaches as sin? Do we single out one sin as more sinful than all the others? Greed, selfishness, gossip, envy, did you notice that those are listed in this passage right along with homosexuality? Well, I think the old-fashioned phrase that we've heard many times before has a lot of application here. Hate the sin and love the sinner still holds true. I think as women of God who want to love God and deal with sin appropriately, our response should be to hate the lie but love the liar. Hate the greed but love the greedy. Hate the gossip but love the gossiper. And hate the homosexuality but love the homosexual. Hate the sin, love the sinner. Hello, my name is Laura, and I am a profound sinner, but I have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel is big enough, and it is glorious enough, and it is wonderful enough to declare every sinner righteous through Jesus Christ. We all have a problem. We are all broken by sin. Our great God, and only our great God, can fix what is broken and give us freedom and victory over whatever sin has taken grip of us. The astronauts in Apollo 13 had a problem, and it brought about many other problems. After that explosion, they lost power. They had to shut down the command module, and without power, it, it, there was question about whether they could even stay alive, and then how could they possibly even, even get home? In order to stay alive, they had to move from the command module into the lunar module, which was only designed to hold two people. And they had to put three people in there because they had to shut down all the systems in the command module. Then they had to figure out how to slingshot around the moon in order to get them back on a trajectory to get back to Earth. Now remember, this is 50 plus years ago technology. The problems were significant. They, it, it required a lot of complicated math and science with great minds all working on this, and they had to work quickly because these men's lives were at stake. There was a manual course correction that had to be made because, you see, they couldn't just come back into Earth and just try to hit Earth. They had to come in at the right place. They couldn't just touch down in the Gobi Desert or in Times Square. They had to land that thing out in the Pacific Ocean. And so hitting it right and hitting that trajectory was like moving, trying to hit a moving target. They were moving, and the Earth was moving. And somewhere along the line, they were able to calculate that they were going to miss it. And they had to do a 30-second burn of the engines to get back on course and to hit the right trajectory. And even more challenging is that 30-second correction, 39-second correction, had to be done manually. So to steer that thing manually without the aid of a computer, they needed a fixed point. And so what they did is they used the Earth's terminator as the fixed point. The Earth's Terminator is that line between night and day on Earth. 
that line between where the sun is shining and where it is dark. Fixating on that line enabled them to make the necessary course correction to hit and come back into Earth safely. You know, when the world and the culture and social media and even our own sinful natures seek to push and pull us off course, we need a line to fixate on. We need to focus on the truth. We need to remember that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that his word is truth. And no matter what is depicted on TV shows, no matter what the law or the government votes or passes, no matter what our neighbor or our second cousin or our girlfriend or whoever chooses to believe or not believe, as women of God, may we let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Ladies, Jesus is our terminator. His word is truth. He determines that line between light and dark. May we as women of God fix our eyes on him and on his word. You know, in 1970, even Congress knew that the intervention of God was needed because both the House and the Senate passed resolutions asking the American people to pray. At that time of crisis, even Congress knew that God provided the answers. Let's pray now. Oh, God Almighty, your word is true. Forgive us for the temptation to take a pair of scissors and to cut out the parts of your word that we disagree with. Let us be women who embrace the truth of all of Scripture. Let us be women who are grateful that we have found our salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. God, we are hungry, starving women who have found the bread of life. Let that never lead us to a place of being puffed up or prideful, but just realize that our job is to show other starving, hungry people where to find the bread of life. We have a problem, and that problem is sin. And Jesus, how we praise you that you are the answer to that. Father, thank you for letting us see the sobering reality of how unrighteous we are because it makes us all the more grateful for the righteousness that you have imputed to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, and it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for being here, ladies. Have a great week. I can run home and do it. I don't yeah, have... I can, you can do it today. Okay, okay. I kind of thought this morning what I wanted to say so I wouldn't take up so much time. So. Okay. Okay. Yeah, we can do that. Let's wait until... Okay. Sounds good.